We're very privileged this morning to have Mike Deaton from Church of the Incarnation in Harrisonburg come and give, open up God's word to us. Dr. Mike Deaton was a professor at JMU of integrated something and something else. Um, he, does, he does science and math stuff, which I don't understand at all. Um, but he has, uh, he and his wife Joetta have been at Incarnation since the very beginning. Or yeah, is it sure. kind of strategically placed? Okay, let me move over here because I want to kind of maybe get where I can see everybody. Mostly, okay, that's good. Uh, well, it's really wonderful to be here. I'm, I'm delighted. And I, I look around, and I think I know some of you, but I can't really tell because your face is all covered up. And uh, I was talking to the Hogans, and I accidentally mistaken Winona for Mary Beth. So... Mary, you know, Winona, it's not because you look so old, but you do are you are growing up, but I just your eyes look just like your mom. So um, today's text. Oh, by the way, you may uh, if you hadn't seen me in a while, I may notice my hair's a little bit longer. Well, this is what two years of retirement and one year of covid will do to you. <laughs> today's text is from Psalm 132. This is one of the 15 Psalms of Ascent, and that includes Psalm 120 through 134. And uh, these Psalms, they were sung and prayed by Jewish pilgrims as they traveled to Jerusalem for different feasts like the Passover or Pentecost. And they're called Psalms of Ascent for a reason. It's because pilgrims literally had to ascend a rather steep climb uphill to get to Jerusalem. Many of them traveled from the region around Jericho and Jericho is the lowest city on earth, 850 feet below sea level. And then they had to climb over 14 miles to Jerusalem, which is 2,500 feet above sea level. So the climb was about 3,400 feet over 14 miles. Just to get a perspective on it, if you started at Elkton and you walked up 33 to Swift Run Gap, that's about six, seven miles, so that's about half the distance, and you would climb not quite half the height so it's actually a steeper climb than from Elkton up to Swift Run Gap that the pilgrims would do. And on top of that, they were traveling over a much more desolate terrain, and it was a terrain that was isolated. It was inhabited by bandits who were just waiting to jump out and harm you and your family and rob you. And so they would try to make these pilgrimages in groups. And these psalms are what they would sing and pray as they made that journey. For the longest time, I thought that these psalms were kind of an interesting historical artifact, uh, like something I would bring up in a Bible study to impress people. Oh, that reminds me of the Psalms of Ascent, you know, like to try and impress people. But in the last year, this particular group of psalms has become very dear to me. And for weeks now, especially during Advent, they've provided a kind of background music for my daily activities. Sometimes it's a sad music and other times, it's a bright and hopeful music. So Christians have sung these psalms for 20 centuries. They've used them to accompany their often difficult journey through life, life that might include persecution or loneliness or guilt or family conflict, financial loss, disease, or death. These psalms give us a very potent and meaningful language for our everyday prayers. But Psalm 132 is a little different kind of thing. It's a strange one in this collection. 
Compared to most of the other Psalms of Ascent, it feels foreign and unconnected to our lives. As I've prayed this Psalm this week, I've struggled to find any real meaning for my own life's experiences. It's felt kind of like a rote liturgy that I would mechanically recite without seeing any useful way to actually use it. But in the last few days, and I'm sure with God's help, I've come to realize that my understanding of this psalm has been clouded by how I typically think about my Christian journey. I saw how, I've seen how my default view of my faith was wholly foreign to the focus of this psalm. That's why I've had such a hard time with it. And when I realized this, I sensed God calling me into an expanded understanding of my Christian journey. And it's one that is richer and that opens up exciting new ways to experience his work in my life and in the world around me. So what I want to do is I want to see if I can give you a sense of this epiphany that I've had and hopes that it might be helpful to you. So I'm going to have three parts to this talk this morning. The first part, I want to talk about faith barriers that come from the culturally shaped patterns of our faith. And then I want to talk, secondly, about how Psalm 132 challenges those barriers. And then finally, in the third part, how Psalm 132 reinvigorates my relationship to the church. The first part will take a bit, and then the last two flow pretty quick, so don't panic when, it, you know, when I say, okay, now we're ready for the second part. So let's first talk about faith barriers that are created by some of the culturally cultural patterns in our, in our society. I've known for a long time, and I'm sure you have, that my understanding of myself and my place in the world has been largely influenced by the culture that I grew up in. Uh, any of you who've spent time in other parts of the world, you know that Americans think really differently than many people from around the world, Africa, the former Soviet bloc, or, or East Asia. Some of this is really great, and some of it's not so great. We've got a young Kenyan man who lives with us, for several years now, named Martin. He lives in our basement. Martin's kind of like an adopted member of our family. And I remember when he first came to the United States in 2013, straight from Kenya, never been on an airplane in his life, hardly had ever ridden in a car. He came and he was a freshman at JMU. He lived in a freshman dorm. He rapidly made a lot of friends. He's very good at that. And he once told us a story about having dinner with some of his buddies after a football weekend. One of his friends was telling about his drunken escapades over the weekend on a pregame party and then a postgame party. Everyone was laughing, you know, at his crazy antics, but Martin was very puzzled, and the quizzical look on his face was noticed by his friend, and his friend immediately said, stop judging me. It's my life. I can do what I want with it. You have no right to tell me how to live. Martin's reply revealed a profound difference between his culture as a Maasai in Eastern Africa and the one that he had now entered as an American college student. Here's what he said. He said, I'm sorry, I'm not judging you, I'm just confused. You said it's your life and you could do with it what you want. I don't understand that. My life belongs to my family and to my village. If I had done what you did this weekend, I wouldn't be able to wake up at 5.30 to take out the sheep and the goats before I walk to school. I might fail some of my exams and I wouldn't be able to get a good job and then help support my family. My life has never been my own life. It belongs to a lot of people. There are some deep and profound truths here 
and there are some things that might make us uncomfortable. But without exploring all of that, my main point here is that Martin's view of himself and his place in the world was profoundly different than this college student and his understanding of himself and his place in the world. And it's because they grew up in two very different cultures. I have no doubt that this plays out in our faith. My American upbringing has had significant uh, influence on my understanding of what it means to be a Christian. What I'm talking about is some deeply held core values in our culture, values about individual rights, about the American dream, about the idea that we can all make it if we just work hard and apply ourselves. The church in America has uncritically used these values to shape our understanding of salvation and of God's work in the world. There's some good in that, but there's also, this can create some real barriers to our faith that are not healthy. And Psalm 132 presses hard up against those barriers. For much of my life, I thought that the primary goal of the Christian faith was to help me know that I'm loved by God, to help me be a good father, a good husband, a good employee, to make my life fulfilling and meaningful, and of course, to get me to heaven and to help me get others to there. I'd summarize this by saying that I long believed that God's primary desire was to have a personal relationship with me. That is, I believed that walking the Christian journey meant that I needed primarily to concentrate my energies on nurturing that personal relationship. So far, so good. This isn't entirely off base. But when I read something like Psalm 132, it doesn't fit. I can't see how Psalm 132 connects to my personal relationship with Christ. First, the psalm, it, it asks God to remember King David and his vow not to go to his own home or to sleep until he could find a resting place for the mighty one of Jacob. Then it goes on to talk about some strange places called Ephrathah and the fields of J.R. Thank you for the pronunciations in the guide. I was total loss there. And, and it goes on to encourage everyone to go to God's dwelling place and worship at his footstool. Then it launches into a prayer asking God and his ark to go to his resting place and not to turn the face of his anointed one away. The psalm concludes with God's answer saying he will do all that has been asked and then some. God promises, he promises are all about him choosing Zion as his dwelling place. He says that he will for sure move into Zion and he won't leave and that there will be plenty for everyone to eat, that Zion's priests will be clothed in salvation and her saints will shout for joy, and that the King David's crown will shine. What are we to make of all this? How, do I, how in the world do I apply this to my own relationship with God? My problem with reading this psalm most of the last few weeks comes from what I'll call a self-centered lens that I was using to read it. And it's perhaps a lens that I often employ when I read the Bible. You heard me right. I said self-centered. I said earlier that I long thought that my faith was all about my personal relationship with God. A less polite and maybe slightly offensive way of saying this is that my view of my faith was that it was really all about what I could get out of that relationship with God. It's about me and him. Now, would my wife Joetta have wanted to marry me if when I proposed to her I said something like, you know, our marriage is really all about 
what I can get out of it. I think for sure that she wouldn't have gotten to that too much. Uh, to be sure, now, I believed when I proposed to her and believe now that I can get a great deal out of my marriage by being a good husband and father. But still, if that was it, wouldn't it just mean that I was really doing all these good things to satisfy myself? My Bible reading can be kind of like that. I can read the Bible to see how it applies to me sort of in isolation, me and God, to enhance my own walk with God, my own personal faith. But isn't that just all about me? Even if I do good things for others, might it just be so that I can have this good relationship with God? Now, don't get me wrong. Seeking a deep personal relationship with God is critical. God appeals to us over and over by promising concrete personal benefits if we place our faith in Christ. Jesus himself describes a very personal form of relationship when he says in John 14, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, he will, uh, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Sounds very intimate and very personal. So a personal relationship with Christ is important. God desires that for us. But Psalm 132 operates on a different dimension altogether. If we can see that dimension, I think it will stretch our minds beyond this all-about-me kind of faith. To illustrate, let's imagine a small child. Let's call her Jen. I don't know if there's any Jens here, so I'm not picking on you, Jen, if you are here. She's five years old. Her mom and dad diligently work to build a personal relationship with her. They are concerned about that. They also use all kinds of incentives to help her learn that it's in her best interest to do some things and not do others. Obey your parents. Eat your peas. Don't stick your finger in the electric socket. From Jen's five-year-old point of view, it's really all about her. She behaves in ways to get rewards for good behavior and to avoid consequences of bad behavior. She also wants to keep things close and comforting between her and her parents. But we don't want it to stay this way. How would it be if a 40-year-old Jen always made her decisions by thinking about, am I going to get a reward or a punishment for this? Or how will mom and dad feel about this? Will they be okay with it? You may know someone who thinks this way, but you probably don't think they're particularly mature. Jen's mom and dad, they have bigger fish to fry in Jen's life than just incentivizing her to behave in certain ways or to making, making her so that she's always preoccupied with how they feel about her. They certainly hope to always have a close and meaningful relationship with Jen, but they really want far more. They want Jen to grow to maturity. By that, among other things, they want her to learn how to connect with the broader world. They want her to see herself as part of a community. They want her to have healthy relationships with others, to respond to authority in good ways, to be able to dream and make plans and make sacrifices for the greater good and not simply live for herself. This is what I mean when I spoke earlier about a, a cultural pattern of our faith creating a barrier in our faith. An individualistic, very American kind of view of Christianity that primarily focuses on this personal relationship with Christ can lead Christians to eventually look like a 40-year-old jinn. Christians who are mostly worried about rewards and punishments and, are, uh, and whether they are okay with God. 
Like Jen's parents, God has much bigger fish to fry in our lives and in the world. So this takes us to the second part of this talk. How does Psalm 132 challenge this barrier to faith that comes from this sort of individualized understanding? After spending a lot of time with the passage, it dawned on me that this psalm isn't about the psalmist's personal relationship with God. It's about God's relationship with his nation, the people of Israel. The psalmist's primary concern here is that God would continue to dwell with his people in the most intimate of ways. So let's, let's just read verses 1 through 10 again. If you've got your Bible, you can look at this. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not sleep to my, to my, to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The psalmist asked God to remember King David and his faithful work and devotion and his sufferings in the service of finding a home for God. In verse 8, it's clear to us that the home he was looking for was a home for the ark of God. We could spend a lot of time on the ark. We won't do that today, but let's just suffice it to say, in the minds of the Israelite people, where the ark was, God was. The ark represented God's presence to them. So what is the psalmist asking for? He's asking God to be present among his people, not as individuals, but as a nation. Verses 8 through 10 are kind of the highlight of the psalm, of the prayer. Rise up, O God, and come to your resting place. What resting place is he talking about? He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. This was the spiritual nerve center of all of Israel. The psalmist is saying, God, please remember your faithful servant David, who worked so hard to find you a home. Now come to that home. Stay there. Don't ever turn your back on us. Then we, your people, will be rich and blessed. Our priests will know and do what is right. Our king will never have to worry that our nation will fall. We will be a light to the nations if you do this. This is different from simply desiring to be personally close to God. You get it? It's even different than just desiring that God is close to each individual in the nation. Let me see if I can illustrate. Imagine a family that is in a land that's besieged by war. Bombs are going off, gunfire is heard, it feels like the world is closing in on them. Their very existence as a family is threatened. Suppose there's an oldest daughter, let's call her Madeline. She's 18 years old. No doubt, Maddie is really concerned that she can be close to mom and dad in these difficult times. But if she is a wise and mature daughter, she also wants her folks to be close to her brothers and sisters, to the entire family as a group. She can hear the gunfire and the bombs. She knows that things are tough out there. The family could come unraveled without the parents nearby to guide and sustain them. 
Maddie understands that even if she doesn't personally feel really close to her parents at this moment, what's really critical is that her parents remain close to the family. It's not all about her. They all need their parents' strength and wisdom. They all need to stick together. In fact, without the parents around, it'll be very tough for the kids to function like a family. This is the world that the Jewish people lived in at the time of the writing of this psalm. It's inconceivable for, uh, well, many, many nations, to elaborate, many of the nations around them were hostile and wanted to drive them out. They needed God with them as a nation. They needed him to remember his faithful servant David and to bless David's son who was now on the throne. It would be inconceivable for a Jew to worry about his personal closeness with God without regard to the whole nation. It just wouldn't compute. The Jew of 1000 BC understood only too well that he belonged to something much bigger than himself or his immediate family. The welfare of his nation was part and parcel to his own welfare, and his own actions had an effect on that nation. In the words of Martin, our Kenyan friend, the Jew of 1000 BC understood that his life didn't just belong to him. It belonged to a whole community. He needed God to be close to that community. Otherwise, they would cease to exist. So, when we pray Psalm 132, we are pushing against our self-centered, individualistic notions of our faith. Our eyes and hearts are lifted to something greater. But what is that greater thing? When we see what it is, it will invigorate our relationship with the church. So let's talk about that, how Psalm 132 invigorates our relationship with the church. You probably see where this is going. While many psalms do refer to a person's individual relationship with God, take, for example, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, personal, something that's very touching and comforting. Psalm 132 deals with something else entirely. It's a prayer for God to draw near, not to a particular person, but to his people as a group, to make them a real family, to bless them as a family, to help them be the distinctive sign of his presence in the world, and to preserve them for all time. How often do you pray for God's church? Not just the leaders, not for particular people, just that, but for the church as an organism, as an institution, as a kind of nation. Do you believe and understand that the church won't be God's light on a hill, his salt for the earth, his hope for mankind, if, it can't, if God is not with them? If, the church doesn't, if God doesn't live in his church, his mission to make all things new in this world will fail. There's a lot at stake here. A lot more than my personal relationship with God. In fact, even if you are personally close to God, that won't be enough. God's work in this world, even your life will not happen. In your life, it won't happen. Your life, your relationship to God are not just yours. They belong to a community to God's church. Here's how Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and then verses 8 and 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are, each one of us, stones. We're being built together to build a beautiful temple, the place where God will dwell. It doesn't matter how big or pretty each individual stone is. What matters is that that stone is placed into a wall with many other stones to create this great temple. Praying Psalm 132 for God's church will temper our individualized notions of our faith and revitalize our commitment to God's church. It will help us be a stone that is fully integrated, resting alongside other stones that together make up God's dwelling place on earth. When we pray verses 1 through 10, we can ask God to remember not David, but Jesus and all the hardships he endured to build a dwelling place for God, his church. We can call on God to clothe his priests, us, in right living and to lead us to shout together with joy. We can ask him to subdue Christ's enemies and never turn Jesus away. Pray verses 1 through 10 for the church. And as you do, don't pray only for this church. Pray for the churches in this city. Pray for the churches in our nation and across the world, the great hope of the world. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. I want to finish with just a quick epilogue because the psalm ends in a remarkable way. It goes on in verses 11 through 18 to give us God's promises, his answer to the prayer in the first half. Let me just read it real quick. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of, your, one of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on the throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Notice that God responds to every single request in the first part of the psalm. But he goes beyond what's asked. He shows that he has even bigger plans than the psalmist had asked for. Here's what he says. He says, yep, I will remember David. I made a promise to him and I'm going to keep it. In fact, David will have a descendant on the throne forever. His name is Jesus. I will dwell in Zion. I have chosen it as my, dress, as my dwelling place. In fact, I have always desired this place, the church, as my dwelling place. I will stay there forever. 
Her priests will be clothed in righteousness. In fact, not just with righteousness, but with salvation that they can take to the nations. And her saints, the church, will shout for joy. I will never turn David's, that is, Jesus' face away from me. In fact, all of Jesus' enemies will be put to shame, and his crown will shine brightly. From the reading this morning in Ephesians, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How will God do these amazing things that are beyond our imagining? In the church and in Christ Jesus across all generations. God does indeed have very big fish to fry much bigger than simply giving me a close relationship with him. He intends to make all things new, to have his glory shine across the entire earth. How? Through the church and Christ as its king. And so, in this Advent season, we pray and we wait, not only for ourselves and our immediate concerns, but for Christ's church, that God would indeed live richly among us, that he, that we would embrace this new family he has given us, and that in doing so, his glory will remake the world in ways that are beyond our imagination.